Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I am hosting solo today as Jim is down in the good state of Kentucky. Uh, we hope he's enjoying his time down there. Uh, but we are focused on the war in Ukraine, which has now entered what I would say is its most dangerous phase since the start of the war. This past week, Russia's attacks on Ukrainian civilians have intensified, attacks that Putin says are in retaliation for Kiev's strike last weekend on the Kerch Strait Bridge. Uh, Putin's renewed threats to use nuclear weapons following the annexation of Ukrainian regions are also raising alarms across the world, even leading U.S. President Joe Biden to make warnings about the risks of nuclear Armageddon. French President Macron, too, has weighed in, saying that France would not respond through nuclear means, a statement that has drawn heavy criticism both at home and from some allies. On the ground, the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to make progress in reclaiming occupied territory, though it, it remains unclear to what extent Russia's military mobilization may be able to stem some of Ukraine's momentum. And of course, there are questions once again about Belarus and its willingness to enter the war. So to discuss this avalanche of new developments in the conflict, we're happy to have two former ambassadors to Russia and Ukraine, both John Teft and Bill Taylor with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Andrea. Good to be here. Uh, quick, quick bios. Um, Bill Taylor is the Vice President for Russia and Eurasia at the United States Institute of Peace. He served as U.S. Ambassador to ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. And John Teft is a retired U.S. diplomat with more than 45 years of experience in the Foreign Service. He previously served as U.S. ambassador to Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, and Lithuania. Okay, um, Ambassador Taylor, maybe I'll start with you. I kind of mentioned in the intro um, a view that we may be in the most dangerous phase of the war um, since its start. Would you agree with that? Or more broadly, kind of how, how do you articulate where we are in this conflict? Andrea, I think you're right about the danger. And, and, and I think it's really dangerous for President Putin. I think he's facing problems domestically. He's facing problems economically. He's facing problems that his military is losing, as you pointed out, um, losing dramatically in the northern part of Ukraine. It's still losing a little, a little more slowly, but still losing in the south. Um, you mentioned that he's trying to fix this. He recognizes that he's got a problem. He's recognized he's got a problem. And so he's doing things like the partial mobilization that you talked about, that has mobilized more Russians to leave the country than to, than to join the join the army. Um, he's got political problems, as I say, on his right that are demanding these escalations and you know, further terrorist attacks uh, on, on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, which he's, as we know, doing. I think, Andrew, he's got problems um, on with just the volume, the number of precision-guided munitions. He's used a lot of them and he continues to use them and he's using them not for military benefit, military gain, no. He's using it against, you know, civilian bridges. You know, John and I know exactly what bridge we're talking about. We've, we've walked on that, on that civilian bridge many times. Um, and to use a, a half a million dollar weapon to take out a civilian, but it makes no sense. So he's got problems. He's got real problems. So I think it's dangerous for him. Um, and uh, 
and and therefore it's it's dangerous uh, uh, for for the world. Yep. Okay. You put a lot on the table there, um, Ambassador Teft. I want you to pick up, you know, on the the dangerous for Putin. Um, you know, people watching this recognize the challenge challenges in assessing the stability of these very closed authoritarian regimes. Um, but given your time there and obviously all of your experience working the Russia file, how much trouble is Putin really in? Well, let me first say uh, that I agree with what Bill said. I think uh, there is a certain uh, level of desperation here. That speech on the 30th of September where he not only annexed, wanted to annex the four oblasts or regions of Ukraine, but announced this um, mobilization, I think reflected, a. I, I, I called it the crossing of the Rubicon for Putin, because both in terms of uh, his desire to not only take territory in Ukraine, but to try to change this now into a more easily understandable inside Russia war of, of defense. You know, it's now they have these four areas. Uh, so now they're defending Russian territory. Now, all of us from the West look at this and say, this is crazy. But I mean, that's, I think, part of his goal. But the second part is, uh, also to, uh, I, I think, basically rule out any negotiations anytime soon. Bill's described the, the horrible military attacks on civilians. Uh, you know, every time he and I see these, and perhaps you do too, uh, like the, the cruise missile that struck right near the university, you know, I've driven through that area so many times and it, it just makes you feel even worse for these poor Ukrainians. You just don't know from one minute to the next when some kind of a bomb's going to rain down on you. Um, I think at home, it, this was a crossing of the Rubicon in the sense that Putin knew, he, he said before numerous times that he wasn't going to move to mobilization because he understood that this would be a key factor inside the society, not just all of these young men and uh, leaving the country to avoid being drafted and going to die in Ukraine, but I think it's now uh, the war has kind of come home. To, to Russia, instead of being able to say it's this little special military operation, you know, never mind, it's over in Ukraine, we will just keep going with our lives here in Ukraine. Now it's real, it's there, it's every day. And as sanctions bite in even more, I think it's going to affect ordinary people. And as Bill said, he's getting opposition now from the right. Uh, I don't know of anybody who thinks that Putin is in uh, uh, perilous, uh, in a moment where he's going to be ousted, but uh, there's clearly uh, a lot of dissatisfaction inside the country. There's a good article on the Washington Post today about all the oligarchs and others who are getting increasingly worried and upset about uh, what's been going on and what the Kremlin is doing. So I'll stop at that point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but again, probably not eminent. But as you point, both public dissatisfaction and some of these divisions within the elite. Um, Ambassador Tuff, to what extent do you think um, that I've, I've heard a little bit of a debate about these challenges that Putin is getting from the right? Some kind of agree that maybe independent is a little bit too strong to describe these factions, the Kadyrovs, the Prigozhins, other people who are calling for these maximalist objectives. Some people argue that Putin is truly under pressure from these voices and from these figures who want him to do more in the war. Others have argued, well, no, they're just the mouthpiece of Putin, and it's really Putin who's the leader of this maximalist kind of hardline faction. How do you, how do you see that? 
I think it's kind of a little bit of both, to be honest. Uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but uh, I think uh, Putin lets these guys talk. Uh, if it was a liberal uh, opposition to the war, they'd be arrested and thrown in jail. But the right-wing guys get away with uh, uh, these kinds of statements. Uh, it does impact Putin because many of these guys are his core constituencies or part of his core constituency in Russia. And so he, he does that. But I've actually been surprised that they've let these some of these guys talk as much as they do and watch. I don't watch all of the TV there, but uh, it's the Sunday night TV programs, which are the equivalent to our uh, Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, they really get rolling here on some of these, uh, uh, you know, attacks on the military, attacks on uh, the conduct of the war. Uh, the one thing they don't do is they don't criticize Putin directly, which, of course, is one of the fundamental things you can't do in Russia. Um, I think that Putin is allowing them to do things, but he's also exploiting uh, this himself or thinks he's exploiting it. What I don't know for sure at this point is whether he's riding a tiger that's going to get out of control on it. Yeah, Ambassador Taylor, go ahead and... So, Andrea, uh, John is the expert, uh, and you, uh, Andrea, are, are the experts on, on Russia. But there are now people that we know and respect um, uh, who say that the challenge to Putin um, is higher than it's been in, in their memory. Um, I don't know. Again, that's like saying the, the probability of the use of nuclear weapons is higher than it was. It may be still low. I, my own view, it is low. Um, uh, and people will know how, the, how high the challenge to Putin is, but there's no doubt that he's weaker than he was. Politically, he's weaker. I mean, he's, he's, he's he, um, but again, you all will know this much better than I, but I think there, there, people are now, smart people are now looking at the at scenarios. Uh, John McLaughlin just recently uh, sketched out one where, where the security services and the military or some factions within um, go to President Putin, they say, you know, Mr. President, uh, we can take care of your security. We have a dacha for you. Uh, you and your family will be just fine. Um, we've, we've got it from here. People are thinking about these kinds of scenarios now, which they weren't, as John points out, they weren't in the past. Yeah, I agree. I fully agree. I think, yes, again, like that his, I, I said, after the start of the war, his hold on power was weaker than it was before the war began. And I think after mobilization, that again is true. It, uh, no eminent kind of instability um, is on the horizon. I think that's true too. But as I, the line I repeat over and over is these authoritarian regimes look stable until they aren't. And these things can happen very quickly. Um, what would you, so I, I mean, again, mobilization and the annexation felt like we entered then a new phase of the war. Um, Bill, and in your opening kind of statement, you talked about that Putin can see that things are not going well. And so he was forced to make some changes in order to try to stem Ukrainian advances. I think um, Ambassador Taft, you were right too about kind of him trying to flip the script and portray this as more of a defensive war to try to bring Russians on side um, and support what he's doing. Um, to the best of your ability, what do you think Putin's objective is at this point? I mean, what do you think now that he is playing for? What do you, and I and I know we, we can't know and we can't get inside of the head of Putin, but at this point, given how poorly things are going for the Kremlin, what do you think he is playing for at this point in time? I think Putin's trying to uh, get through the winter. 
Uh, he's trying to get more soldiers in to stem the tide, to hold the, the lines as, he, as much as he can uh, defensively, both in Eastern and Southern uh, Ukraine. He's trying to uh, make life as miserable as he possibly can for the Ukrainian people by not just these terror bombings that uh, the missiles that go in, but also destroying as much as he can the electricity and the heating systems inside of Ukraine. Uh, the problem there is he somehow thinks this is going to change the views of, of Ukrainians, and God knows the how, how they're suffering, but it seems that uh, it just redoubles the determination, uh, not just in the leadership, but in ordinary people, uh, to uh, resist uh, the Russian invader and to, to get through this. The second part of that is uh, to try to put pressure on the West, to put pressure on the Ukrainian government, to try to get them to somehow come to the negotiations. But that's a non-starter too, because again, in his September 30th speech, he calls on Zelensky to do negotiations, but then he says basically that the four new regions that they've annexed are now, that they're now Russian territories. So I, I don't, there's just no way that that Zelensky or any Ukrainian leader for that matter could uh, could negotiate on that. So getting through the winter uh, as best he can, I think is where he is at right now. And uh, But I'm not sure he even understands that there's a, an end game at this point because everything else has gone badly. And in a way he's in a box. Yeah, Bill, do you want to weigh in too? Thanks, Andrea. Yeah, I agree with John. Um, uh, he, he He's hoping um, that this terror bombing, he's hoping that this uh, energy war that he's conducting against the Europeans and the rest of the world, for that matter, is going to somehow intimidate um, or, or, or cause the Ukrainians to give up. And as John says, that's not happening. It's the opposite. They are more determined now to win this war with our support. And they're very frank. They need our continued support and increased support from us. But they are more determined now, after all of this, uh, all these atrocities, these war crimes, this attempted genocide, um, uh, they're more determined now. And President Biden, to his credit, has said over and over, we will not be intimidated. And NATO said it again yesterday. The Secretary General said it again yesterday. We will not be intimidated. So President Putin is failing in his attempt to intimidate and trying to get a crack or somehow, somehow get the Ukrainians or the Americans or NATO to say, okay, um, uh, we give up. They, no one's doing that. It's the opposite. It is having the opposite effect. Um, Ambassador Taylor, the, 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 there's an economic piece to this. So, right, so Ambassador Tuff's talking about, I think, you know, Putin getting through the winter. I think mobilization was clearly designed to stem Ukrainian advances. And I think the kind of general consensus in our analytic community now is that unlikely to shift the tides in Russia's favor, but it very well could prolong the war. And so then we get into this period where uh, of where the economic devastation to Ukraine feels like it's also a very intentional part of Putin's strategy. Can you, and, and I think that's something that the media doesn't pay as much attention to, right? We focus quite a lot on what's happening on the battlefield. Um, but now with the attacks on critical infrastructure, um, just the, the toll it's having on Ukraine's economy, um, can you, I don't know to what extent you're following this economic piece, but can you talk a little bit about that part of Putin's warfare? Andrea, I think you're exactly right. The economic part is really, is really key. Um, and the damage to the Ukrainian economy, people estimated at 30% of the Ukrainian economy is, 
it has been has been destroyed or has been reduced. The, and there was that statistic. I think the IMF or the World Bank has now in, improved their assessment of Russia's economic decline. So there are something like four percent, and the Ukrainian economy is like forty percent decline in GDP. Thirty, so, 30 or forty percent. And yeah. and the and you're right. The Russian economy down. I don't know four to six and percent. But um, it is clearly having a devastating effect on the Ukrainian economy, and that's having a devastate, devastating effect on the ability of the Ukrainian government to continue to provide services, basic services to the Ukrainian people. First of all, to pay their soldiers, pay their soldiers in the field. Um, second, to pay first responders to, to try to recover and try to repair um, and try to restore electricity and water. Um, and these kind of basic services, and to and to pay for police, and teachers, and healthcare workers. I mean, so so, and the estimates are five billion dollars a month. The American, we, the United States, we've been contributing very significantly, um, and the Ukrainians are very appreciative. I was there last month and talking to Ukrainians, um, and they are appreciative not just of the weapon; they're very appreciative of the weapon. They all bring up HIMARS. They all know what a HIMAR is. And, uh, uh, and, they, and they say, we, it's, we, we need more, but they're very, but they also are very appreciative that the United States, unlike others, if you would like me to put it the other way, the United States is leading the way towards support. Um, it's very uh, diplomatic of you. Financial support to the Ukrainian government at a billion and a half a month grant. And so there are other donors, um, and I'll just say Europeans, um, who are not as generous yet. I mean, they're, they're bogged down in some, uh, for some reason they can't get this money out. And they're saying it's gonna be loans um, as opposed to grant money. So, so it is important uh, that the Ukrainian government continue to exist, to be able to function, to be able to get through this winter as, as John points out. Yeah, Ambassador Tuft, I mean, as Russia continues to hit critical infrastructure, going after things like electricity, heating, I mean, what what impact, I mean, we've talked about how that's kind of um, just increasing Ukrainians' resolve to fight this. But when you think, you know, how are you thinking about the economic piece of this war? I mean, what is this winter going to look like for many Ukrainians? I think it's going to be really tough. For them, I, I was talking to a, a good friend of ours who will go un, unnamed in this uh, uh, in this conversation because it was a private conversation. But uh, this particular person was very worried about the impact of the economy uh, on ordinary uh, Ukrainians, uh, not just heat and electricity, but people just don't have the, the wherewithal anymore to kind of keep going. Plus, the government has to make sure that the supplies are there, as far as I can tell food and other things are readily available. Bill was just in, in Ukraine a month ago, so he can talk to that. But, uh, you know, winter can be pretty tough in Ukraine, as, as we know who, those of us who live there. So anyway, one of the things I'm praying for these days is not only a, a mild winter in Ukraine, but also a mild winter all over Europe so that the Europeans don't feel uh, the, uh, the pressure. And just add on that, uh, I've talked to a couple of friends who've been in Europe recently, I have not. Uh, and one of the things that's striking is you read these stories in the press about how the pressure is on and to, to deal with energy and the rest of it and on the governments. But from what many of these people have found, there's a lot of, the European governments have done pretty well on energy, building up their reserves. 
But the other thing that they've come back with, and this is people from who were in Germany as well as in parts of England, is they said that the, these ordinary people uh, are still supportive. Uh, one friend found that a relative in Northern England had actually taken in a Ukrainian family. These are working class people. Uh, and, and it was basically these poor blokes in Ukraine are getting getting killed and being terrorized. By God, I'm going to do my little bit to try to help them. And apparently that popular feeling is still is still there in many, many of the countries. So I'm sure there's also others who perhaps are different with that. But I think that's an important thing as we start the winter. That's one of the things that encourages me as we're looking ahead. I agree. I think, you know, when you, especially when you look at public polling, including in places like Germany, um, also in France, it does seem to be still resounding support for the Ukrainians and for sustaining the push back against the Russians. So I, I, yeah, I hope that, that, that it's the media that is overhyping um, the, the, the challenges and the pressure on European society to sustain support. Um, yeah, Andrew, Ambassador Taylor. point on that, as, um, in order to get into and out of Kiev, uh, I went, went through Poland, many of us went through Poland, and the Poles have been incredibly supportive of Ukraine. Um, you know, um, probably two or three million Ukrainians, um, may, maybe more, four or five million Ukrainians um, have, 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 gone, have fled um, this bombing and uh, this destruction <clears throat> and have gone into Poland. And you go through Poland um, and there are no refugee camps. There are none, zero. Well, why? Because all of these Ukrainians are in homes. They're in, they're in Polish homes and they're in Polish hospitals and they're in Polish schools and they've got jobs in the Polish economy. It's incredible the way the Poles have opened up, not just the Poles, uh, but the Poles have borne the, 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 the large burden, the large brunt, uh, the large proportion of the Ukrainians coming in. And by the way, uh, I think it's true now that there are more Ukrainians going back into um, Ukraine than there are leaving. Nonetheless, um, there are a lot of Ukrainians in, in European societies. This positive discussion as a national security expert makes me feel uncomfortable. So I wanna get back to the really bad stuff. <laughs> um, let's talk about, cause Ambassador Taylor, you, um, made, you know, reiterated the point that, you know, Putin isn't having success on the battlefield. And then the question becomes then, then what? Um, and so, yes, if he makes it through the winter and is able to stabilize the front lines, but we get to spring and the Ukrainians then are able to resume uh, their counteroffensives um, and make progress. That's the question that many of us are grappling with is the then what? And obviously our media, um, for good reason, has been very focused on the risk of Putin's use of a tactical nuclear weapon. And so I just, you know, maybe just to hear your thoughts on, you know, what, if you draw this out and as the Ukrainians continue to have success, hopefully the United States continues to lean in and provide more and more that they need in order to win back their territory. Then the question is, so what? How do you think that uh, Vladimir Putin responds to sustained Ukrainian progress on the battlefield? So you, sustained Ukrainian progress on the battlefield, Andrew, you're exactly right. That's what's going on right now. Um, and and just there's a minority view, which I share, which I which I uh, which says that um, that sustained Ukrainian progress um, on the battlefield and and the uh, the disasters that the that the Russians are facing, in particular in Kharkiv, um, in Izum, um, and in Liman, 
um, where the Russians are abandoning their tanks and they're fleeing, they're dropping their weapons and they're getting on bicycle, you know, they're, they're going. Um, that route um, is devastating uh, to Russian morale and is, and is it's great for Ukrainian morale. And there is some chance, um, and I'll get to your second part of your question, but just sticking on the positive side, there is some chance that the Russian military will collapse. It is collapsing around uh, in the north. Um, we'll see what happens to this 20,000 uh, uh, Russian soldier unit that's on the western side, on the right bank of the Dnieper down uh, near Kherson. Um, they could be cut off. 20,000 Russians could be cut off and they're e they either surrender or they try, to, they try to get across the river. But of course, the, the Ukrainians have used HIMARS very effectively at knocking out those bridges. So it's gonna be hard for the Russians to escape. They're, they could be in real trouble. If that happens, that could, that could, we could see the same kind of thing in the South uh, as we're seeing in the North. So I, I so- yeah, And just possible. to add on that, I mean, which, which is the winter piece of this because we know that their supply lines are disrupted. I don't think many of those fighters are probably kitted out with winter gear. And so what happens to them then? I agree that there is a, a big possibility that we could see something really major down South. We can see something very major down south. The, the attack on the Kerch Bridge is also a contributing factor. I mean, that, that is a supply line. It is the supply line. It is the rail. They don't have rail on the land bridge yet. They, they have to do the rail across the Kerch Strait in order to supply the, the heavy weapons and the fuel and all that. So, so they've got troubles in the south as well. And it could, we could see that uh, a collapse in the south as well. In which case, we could be looking at Putin could be looking at real defeat um, in, uh, in the three, four, five months, you know, into the winter, as, as, as you say. What does he do? Um, the, the question about nuclear weapons, I would love to get both Andrew, yours and, and, and John's uh, thoughts on this. My, uh, my sense is it's a low probability. There's no, I, I was just talking to uh, um, a, a retired military general this morning, and he confirms all of the military analysis that there's no military benefit for, for Putin um, or the Russians to use nuclear weapons um, in, in Ukraine. There's incredible political price that he would pay internationally uh, to the people who are on the fence, to the Chinese, the Indians, for them, for them to see the Russians using nuclear weapons first use against a nuclear unarmed Ukraine. It's horrible. Um, it's just horrible to even think. Uh, my bet is, that the Russian people, John will know the better about the Russian people. My bet is the Russian people will not be supportive of, of their country using nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Putin has told the, the Russians contradictory things about, about Ukraine, but he's all, he said, they're really just Russians. These are really just, they're not really Ukrainians. And so for, the, for him to use nuclear weapons, I think is a political problem. For him. No, uh, uh, it's terrible for him on, on a political side. So, um, so what does he do? What does he do? This is his problem, first of all. And, and when President Biden starts talking about off-ramps, my interpretation of what President Biden was saying is not that we are looking for to give him an off-ramp. No, it's Putin who needs an off-ramp. He needs to find one or build one himself. He got himself into this problem. He needs to get himself out. And the way out is when I was, as you say, as John just said, I was there last, I was in, in Kiev last month. And the answer you get from the Ukrainians about the way out for Putin, pull your troops out. Pull Russians out of Ukraine, and then we can talk. 
Um, and that, you know, Putin may, may ought to try, try to do that. But I'd love to hear John's thoughts. And that's our tough. I want you to answer that too, but just play that scenario for a second. Can Putin do that and survive in office? Do you think that he could pull his troops out and live another day as the president of Russia? I think he could because he is Putin. He's tough. He's a Leningrad street fighter. Uh, and he uh, has total control inside the system. He's eliminated all of his potential rivals. That said, I also agree with most of Bill's points that uh, uh, he would find himself in a real box. Putin doesn't like to lose. Uh, none of us like to lose. But I think he's, in a way, bet the ranch uh, on, uh, on, on Ukraine here now. And so if things turn badly for him, uh, how is he going to be able to maneuver this? And I think that's the crossing the Rubicon, as I said, on September 30th, doubling down on all of this stuff, eliminating some of the potential negotiated off-ramps makes it, it even harder here. It's typical of Putin. I think it's very, it's very uh, traditional. Now, on nuclear weapons, uh, I think the president mentioned, you know, Putin's a rational uh, actor and tries to do things. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've seen so far is, in fact, threats. We have to take it seriously, and I'm glad to see the administration doing that. Uh, that said, I, I've talked to military guys too, and uh, you can't, there's really no particular purpose of using a nuclear weapon on the battlefield to change the nature of the battle. You kill a lot of people, you irradiate people. If the wind's blowing in the westerly, from the west to the east, it, it blow, if you detonate something in eastern Ukraine, it blows into Russia itself, the contamination. Um, it doesn't necessarily change the nature of the battle. Um, now, indesperation, if everything's falling apart, the army's deserting or something, that's, that's when I and I think most people get, get worried here as to what Putin might do. Yeah, I agree with that. And again, I also agree that there wouldn't be any battlefield um, utility in using one. But I, it's that scenario that you're kind of describing, Ambassador Teft, which is when there are no options left, might he see the use of a nuclear weapon as... Um, intimidating and getting the West, Ukraine's Western backers in particular, to change course. Maybe he calculate. I mean, this is these are this is a regime who views the targeting of civilian centers as a plausible pathway to victory. Right? They still believe, I think, that they can get the Ukrainians to back down if they inflict enough pain. So I think that's the scenario I worry about. Is not that it would have utility on the battlefield, but if there are no other options that they would see, that Putin would see the use of a tactical nuclear weapon as either intimidating the Ukrainians enough, even though, Bill, as you said, they won't be intimidated. And when I was in Ukraine too, you hear, even with the tactical nuclear weapon, they're not deterred by it because they're already in a, a war of survival. Um, and so, but so, and and so that that's what I worry about. I also worry about the information space that Putin is in. Right, we knew that leading up to the war, it wasn't good. I probably I believe it's probably further deteriorated. And you know, we made Bill, you you laid out all of those perfectly reasonable um, points about why Putin wouldn't use a tactical nuclear weapon. But we, I think, we all made those same lists when he had his troops amassed on the border. Right, we could think of. 50 reasons why it wasn't in Putin or Russia's interest to invade in the first place, and he still did it. So yes, low probability, but there's lots of things that really make me worry. And 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 it's it's that it's the personalist dictator thing too. I mean, I'm not sure Putin believes that he can survive 
uh, defeat in Ukraine. And, you know, if he, I think he worries and the data would show with these personalist leaders that when they're ousted, there are typically killed, jailed, exiled, something horrible. And so if that's the fate you believe that is waiting for you, then you fight ever more bitterly to stay in power. And so like that's the dynamic that worries me most. But um so Andrea, I know yeah. John had John wanted to say something here. Um but but just one quick thing on on that on your point about uh would he use them if backed into a corner. Um uh, the other thing that several on this topic, the other thing that several military people have told me and reiterated again this morning, that th there are people, military people, security people between President Putin and the person who actually launches those the, that, that nuclear weapon. Um, you two will know better than I um, about the reliability of the people between Putin and the person who launches that weapon. But this general, retired general, was saying that's a problem for Putin. I don't. I I have a. I don't. I think that their chain of command is fairly firm. Um, I don't see any cracks or divisions. And my sense is, if that Putin gave the order, then the order would be implemented. But Ambassador Taft, or yeah, Ambassador Taft, I don't know if you see it that differently. Yeah, I think they probably have tried to make sure that there is a pretty seamless uh, line of command. I um, I was struck. Uh, they finally now appointed this uh, new general, this uh, the butcher of Baghdad, or Bergakin, uh, yeah, all of the, yeah. the bombing in uh, in Syria. He's now running the campaign in Ukraine, and everybody says he's one of the most ruthless characters there. I would be very surprised if they didn't uh, make sure that they've got loyal people who will do what they're told uh, when it comes to uh, nuclear uh, weapons. Should it come to that. Um, uh, two other quick points. I think your point is exactly right, uh, Andrea, on Putin. Uh, what we have to worry about is when the rational actor feels so desperate that he becomes an irrational actor and does something uh, for whatever emotional reasons. Through most of his career, Putin has always been seen by analysts as the kind of the, the classic carefully balancing tactical uh, kind of genius, even when his strategic judgments have been pretty wrong, not just the current war. Um, and, you know, do you get to that point where he sees everything falling apart? That's uh, worrisome. The other point, I think Bill referred to it, but perhaps worth reemphasizing, uh, use of nuclear weapons would undoubtedly undercut support in China and India in particular for Putin and what he's trying to do. I think after some of the bellicose uh, nuclear uh, saber rattling that Putin did recently, Modi even uh, kind of not disassociated himself, but was clearly not very comfortable with uh, uh, with Putin at this point. And, uh, you, and India's kind of balanced position, however you want to describe it. Okay, maybe we can spend the last several minutes here um, talking about then what we do about it. So first and foremost, um, Ambassador Taylor, what do you think uh, the U.S. and allies need to do to try to deter Putin from using a tactical nuclear weapon, recognizing fully that we weren't able to deter the invasion in the first place? Um, so what, I mean, and, and the administration, to their credit, is taking lots of positive steps. So, you know, what do you see the administration doing and what, what, what else might we need to do in order to um, set ourselves up as best we can to deter the use of a nuclear weapon? That's exactly the right question. How do we deter? 
And as you just said, Andrea, um, administration, Jake Sullivan's been pretty clear. The president's been pretty clear. They've, they have communicated. Jake has indicated he's talked to senior people in Moscow. Um, and he has described, apparently, in some detail, catastrophic consequences, in, in Jake's words. Um, and, and I am sure that in the conversations with the senior Russians, he detailed what those catastrophic consequences could be, depending on what the, what the Russians decide to do. So the deterrence is exactly right. Part of deterrence is to make it clear that we will respond that the West will respond, that the NATO will respond, that, that and, and we won't say exactly what the response will be, but it's pretty clear that it will be some kind of a military response. There will probably be others, um, other kinds of response, economic, political, diplomatic, uh, uh, this kind of business, but there will be a, a, a devastating, catastrophic response to a, to a decision by the Russians to use nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine. So the deterrence is really important. To make that deterrence real and credible, um, what we need to do is undoubt what we are, I'm sure doing over in the Pentagon um, is going through scenarios. What if they use, you know, this small weapon here? What if they use a larger weapon there? What if they demonstrate? What if, they, what if you know, what if it's, what if they are devastating, a larger weapon? I'm sure we have uh, ideas about that. Um, uh, John McLaughlin, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, former CIA director, um, uh, made the point um, that, uh, that, that we shouldn't immediately respond, respond to a nuclear weapon. He said we would probably have to eventually, um, but he thought that, um, that if the Russians used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, um, that we should be ready to fire back um, in some, some way, not with nuclear weapons, but, but conventionally, but we should give a little time. He, he said, don't be hasty with that response. See what the response is, as John just points out, from the Chinese, from the Indians, from the, from the international community more, more broadly, um, that might be powerful enough that when we do respond, which I think we should, I think if, if they use it, that I think there is a military response that NATO will give. And I am 100% sure that that conversation has taken place maybe as recently as yesterday. Uh, about uh, about what kind of response that would be. Not nuclear, I, I'm, I'm sure, uh, but some kind of a kinetic response. And to make that credible, we need to be able to, to mount those responses. And I think we've got the capability to do that. You will know, John will know as well. Anything to add, Ambassador Taft, on that piece? I think Bill covered most of the key points. I would note that I read in the press this morning that Joseph Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, said that if Putin uses nuclear weapons, the Russian army will be annihilated, if yeah. I remember the word correctly. Um, I think, I don't know all of the details of what the administration has done, but they seem to have been covering most of the key pieces here. Uh, I was glad I read an article yesterday, a Russian article, where they said that Jake Sullivan has been talking to uh, uh, the foreign policy chief for uh, Putin, and not just Mr. Patrushev. Now, uh, the foreign policy chief is, is a career diplomat. He's not a key policymaker there. But the one thing I know he does, because I work with him, uh, is he passes messages clearly and concisely to the boss. Uh, one could envisage a scenario where a message would go to, uh, uh, let's say, Mr. Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, who by almost all accounts is one of the 
key, uh, not only a key aid, but key supporter, uh, kind of a hardliner on these issues. But getting that another message to other people in the uh, political leadership there, I think, is a smart thing to do. And there's probably other things that we don't know about that are uh, being done uh, in terms of getting the message through to Putin so he understands. Because I think, and I think, Andrea, I've heard you speak about this before, and perhaps Bill has too, one of the big problems here leading up to the war was Putin, partly for COVID, partly for his own security, had isolated himself so much. Uh, you know, Even when I was ambassador there, and I left five years ago, uh, I had senior journalists who would have times in, uh, you know, Putin would give them a briefing. They'd bring in the editors and they'd say they were just amazed at how uninformed or ill-informed he actually was on things. And so that was always something that I worried about. And I think it only gotten, it's only gotten worse. I'm glad you raised this channel of communication. Um, I, I had missed that. And that's a really important point. And it's good to see that they're looking for different interlocutors who might be able to pass that unvarnished information. So I'm glad you flagged that. Um, in terms, uh, I, I actually just had a meeting yesterday with um, a group from Lithuania who was in town, their national uh, advisor, or I think their national security advisor, who was here to see Jake Sullivan. And they are hosting the NATO summit next year in 2023. And one of the issues that they're very keen to raise at that NATO summit is Ukraine's NATO membership. Um, obviously, after these horrible strikes on Monday, President Zelensky came out right away and renewed his calls for NATO membership. Bill, how do you, how do you think that the United States and NATO as an alliance um, should respond to these renewed calls from uh, Ukraine? How should they respond? I think they and we should respond positively. Um, I think that uh, Ukraine has demonstrated that it has the, the capability, the military capability, the political capability, the will to confront and even defeat the Russian army, which is what NATO is there to do. Um, so NATO uh, is about to be 32. Uh, they're about to have Sweden and, and Finland. Um, um, and I'm sure Lithuanians um, and the other Baltics are very happy that the, that the Finns and the Swedes are going to be there. They're much more defensible now. Um, but with Ukraine added to the alliance, um, that would strengthen the alliance dramatically. Now, it's going to be difficult to do it in the middle of a war. Got that. Um, but this war will end. Uh, the Ukrainians are absolutely convinced they will win this war. Uh, when they win this war, then the issue of NATO membership or some kind of guarantee some kind of security guarantee for Ukraine, because it, when they win this war, the Russians won't give up, in particular if it's still Putin. I mean, if, if he's still in, uh, in, in the Kremlin, he will not give up. And he will. his mission, his historical mission in his eyes is to be the one that, that dominates, that brings Ukraine back into the Russian empire. Uh, so he won't have given up. He won't give up in that scenario. And Ukrainians will need a security guarantee to be sure that they're not invaded again. And the best one is NATO membership. Um, there are some things that we could do and should do to give that security guarantee to the Ukrainians while they are on, in the process of, of joining NATO. And we're in the process of having the debate in NATO, which there clearly will be um, and has been. Um, but during that time, we need to be sure that the Ukrainians can defend themselves and deter another attack uh, from, from the Russians. I hear everything you said. I think the biggest, um, uh, I don't know, it's not criticism, but pushback against what you would, what you just said might be that doing that in the middle of the war 
the bringing, it's, it's presumably if this was next year at the NATO summit, could potentially be decisive for the alliance? And would we want to raise such a divisive issue, expose cracks in the alliance? Um, it, it would, would it be distracting to NATO to be engaged in that kind of debate in the middle of the war? So I hear everything that you said, and just to, you know, that I think that's the other side of the argument, is now really the time? Um, and I, I wonder how you think about that. So the way I think about that is that it's real possible um, that the war will be over in three months, that the, that the, the, the Russian, will, Russian military will, will collapse. Um, but, but let me be clear. Um, I, I don't think in the middle of a, of a war, um, there is a, a chance that NATO will agree um, to include a, a combatant um, uh, in, in, the, in the alliance for obvious kinds of reasons. So when the war ends, um, when the Ukrainians are victorious, that's the time to then consider the value of, uh, to the alliance, to European security of having Ukraine in there. Ambassador Teff, feel free to respond to that. Or um, I think, you know, as a final question. I think the two of you have covered most of the key points. I was going to make the same point that you did. I And then yeah. expanded on it. Uh, I think NATO, you, you don't want this divisive debate uh, or potentially divisive debate, especially if the war is going on, because people are going to say, hey, I don't want to go into a, I don't have to go fight a war with the Russians because as, as we all know, that's the policy that uh, the, the United States and NATO have pursued. But uh, down the road, there's going to be issues here. And, uh, you know, I, I just think back to the statements that President Zelensky has made about uh, earlier in the war where he said, well, we don't need a member, member of NATO, but we need security guarantees. And I, I never quite understood, <laughs> how do you have Article 5 without Article 5 of the NATO treaty? And so uh, there's stuff to be sorted through here. But I think people are rightly focused on helping Ukraine, getting now more air defense systems in there to help them uh, in this uh, in this struggle. As a final question, and I don't think you're going to have any concrete answers because these are the questions we're all grappling with. But in 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 so much is going to be contingent on what happens in Russia and potentially who follows Putin. But I think the question a lot of people are starting to grapple is with is what happens after Putin. Um, what are the types of questions that you think the administration at European should be grappling with now uh, in order to try to break the cycle of confrontation with Russia in a post-Putin world? So I think we would all agree that I don't think anything is really going to substantially improve while Putin is there. But eventually, we're going to want to get back to a more um, stable relationship with Russia. We don't have to say stable and predictable because that term was at the beginning of the administration had got a lot of a, a lot of pushback. But eventually, we will want to break the cycle of confrontation. And I just, it, and, it, and it, you know, right, I know we're not. No one is going to have the answers here at this point. But if you were in the administration and recognizing, as we've said, that Putin's hold on power looks a little less firm than it did seven months ago. Um, what types of questions might you be grappling with as we think about trying to get back on track? Maybe I'll start on that one. I, I think, first of all, uh, I've been trying to think this through and I've talked about it with some of my friends. Uh, if somehow Putin isn't there for whatever reason, uh, I think we have to assume that at least for a few years, Putinism is still going to be there. Um, and I don't want to draw precise parallels, but you know, I remember when Gorbachev, took over. We all remember when Gorbachev took over. Uh, it took him a while to consolidate his position 
uh, it was a different kind of system with the Politburo and others before he could actually have the get the authority and the green light to be able to go ahead and say compromise on the INF treaty, remember back in 1987. So how do you, I, I don't think the administration or NATO, the West should uh, dream of, of having a quick turnaround. I don't see that happening, even if uh, Putin is ousted. I think second that uh, uh, this whole issue of the empire and Ukraine being part of Russia is not gonna go away soon. Even if Ukraine wins the war, Russia is turned back. This dream is gonna continue inside the system. Now, maybe it'll be far fewer people. The people of Russia may not support it because of all of the people, all of the soldiers who died and the, the cost of the war for Russia. But uh, you know, the, it's gonna take a while for the Russian elites to get this out of their system, that they have to be a part of Europe uh, if they're gonna be survived. And if they're going to modernize their country and be capable of, of, uh, uh, of being a, ser a serious power, not just the junior partner to China, not just uh, uh, on a, at a, at within a strange relationship with the U.S. and Europe, it's going to take a little while to do that. And last point I would say is when I was ambassador in Moscow, I always tried to meet as many people as I could. Now, the Russians at that point were after 2014 and the first invasion of Ukraine, uh, they weren't letting Western ambassadors into the presidential administration. So some of the people who I actually knew, I couldn't actually see because of the, the way they did it. That said, I saw newspaper editors, I saw thinkers, I, I saw all kinds of people. And my goal was to have a conversation to get some points into some of these people to counter, I think, some of the stuff that either they had believed firmly or... Uh, things that, uh, that were just inculcated in them through the media. Like, to give you an example, uh, when I got to Moscow in September of seven, 2014, they all were talking still about, uh, well, we're going to expand now and, and build this land bridge from Crimea over to Donetsk. And those people will rally to our side. They all speak Russian, all those people down there in Kherson and Zaporizhia. And I said, listen, I was there in 2013. I talked to these people. And I'm sure there's some there that who will support this, but I didn't find a single leader who didn't want to stay a part of Ukraine. What are you smoking? And, and it was like a, a shock to some of them because they had gone on this assumption that speaking Russian means you support Russia and want to be a part of Russia. And I think there's things like that that uh, are going to be, they're myths, there are uh, beliefs that are going to have to be shattered and changed if we're going to actually find a long-term relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Sorry for going on so long. No, those are such important points, and I agree wholeheartedly. Um, Ambassador Taylor, kind of last word, any reflections on that? And the last word is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. It's great uh, it's great to be here with, with both of you. And I would agree with John. There's, there's yeah. not going to be a quick turnaround in Russia, even if Putin goes. I mean, Putinism... But, but, you know, you all will know the Russian history better than I, but the Ukrainians know the Russian history very well. And, Andrea, the Lithuanians that you talked to yesterday, they know Russian history very well as well. And when you talk to Lithuanians, and I talked to some Estonians yesterday, and Ukrainians all the time, they point out that this Putinism, a version of this autocratic, oppressive, aggressive, expansionist Russia, it's not Putin. It's not even Putinism. This is, it's baked into Russian 
history. I don't, I won't say DNA. I don't know the Russian DNA, but it's baked into Russian history. It goes back hundreds of years. And the Lithuanians and the Estonians and the Ukrainians and the Poles, they know this. And that's why they wanted to join NATO back in the 90s. You know, the, Putin was not there in the 90s and the Poles really wanted to be in NATO. And why? Because they know Russian history. So I think this is, and so again, again, most this week, we, we now have the Biden national security strategy. And it says, we're gonna contain Russia. We're gonna compete with China, but we're gonna contain Russia. And it doesn't say with or without Putin. And it, and it, and it shouldn't because the, it's, not, it's not just Putin that we're gonna contain. And last thing I'll say on this is we've seen evolution and revolution in, in so in, you know, in the SARS time, um, in, uh, in Soviet times. Um, and we saw in 1991, uh, there were people worried. There was a US president who was worried about what might happen if the Soviet Union disappeared or, or inflated. And this US president went to Kiev and told the Ukrainians, oh, be careful, you know, the, if the Soviet Union disappears, it could be bad for the, that was wrong. That was wrong. And I don't think we're going to make that mistake again. I, and I think we should be thinking, and I think the probably administration is, I know many people around the city are thinking, what happens if, if the Russian Federation starts to crack? Um, it's, it's, this will be controversial. This will be a difficult question. But we saw it when the Soviet Union cracked. Um, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, um, and so it won't be the end of the world if the Russian Federation cracks as well. So I'll say that there's a lot going on. There's a history that the Russians will, can't get rid of. You know, the, the, we know what they've been over 300 years. Um, and chances are there's a lot of people in Russia that still think that way. John will know these guys better than I, but then you, Andrea. But uh, again, it's great to be here with you all. Yeah, I always try to take a little more of an optimistic take, which is, I mean, in the face of a significant defeat, um, that perhaps, you know, these strategic cultures can change over time. And I agree, it's gonna take a while till we get there. I agree that the Putin and Putinism will cast a long shadow, but I do hope that eventually um, we can get to a better place. I was, all, and I'll, I'll give you the last word, Ambassador Teft, but on the national security strategy, I was heartened to see at the beginning of the administration, they described Russia as an acute threat to me, which undersold the challenge. I think in this one, it is phrased as a persistent threat, which again, I think reflects what you all are talking about, which is that there that there is going to be staying power even past Putin, that the threat doesn't go away. So I think that is a good sign. It's a small change, but it that carried a lot of weight to me. But Ambassador Taft, you get the last word. I would just say that uh, we are still involved in the, what I consider the post-imperial period in Russia. And as we all know from watching other empires uh, die slowly, it's taking a long time for the Russians to do this. The imperial idea continues and people still embrace it. Putin has done his best to try to inculcate it in the minds of young people who come along. So it's another reason why it's gonna take a little while before we see the evolution of a society uh, inside of Russia, a society that is actually modernized and driven by the, the needs to make a modern successful nation rather than uh, uh, basically recreate the imperial past. Yeah. 
Well, this has been a really fantastic discussion. I thank both of you for taking your time to join us. Um, and I hope we can check in again at some point soon. So thank you both. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.